I want to talk about the Father Heart of God. This is a revelation that has impacted me. Um, and I, I think we worked out, it was a couple of years ago, I did a talk on the gospel and how the gospel affected us and changed our lives and enables us to go through all kinds of trials and difficulties because at least the gospel's getting promoted. I had a moment with God where I realized the power of the gospel like I've never seen it before. And that has impacted me in a whole different way because I've started to think about, well, the father heart for the church, I get. But what about the father heart of God for the lost? And the fact that Jesus had so many sinful friends... Uh, And that's really what I want to talk about. I've really been impacted by Luke chapter 15. Um, And also there was a prequel last week. So if you've missed that, it's an important picture for you to get hold of. Because that's kind of what we're going after. So listen to last week if you missed it. Uh, I did a prequel. So there you go. The Father's Heart for the Lost. I, I just wonder, have you ever thought about how God views some of the things in society that offend us. Uh, The choices that people make, the sins that they commit, some of the prejudices that seem to pervade our world. And have you ever thought about how we should respond to those things? Um, The churches that we were raised in, Alice and I, were deeply influenced by the holiness Movement, which, if you don't know anything about it, it was about separation from the world and worldly thinking. And, and this significantly, I think, shaped my perspective on things. And for many years, we lived uh, mostly without a television. And then when we did have one, it was black and white, um, which, until I met Alison, and then she led me astray... Uh, <laughs> But the ladies wore head coverings and long skirts. Uh, We didn't drink alcohol. Pop music was banned, as was doing anything on a Sunday, except for church, and all to protect people from worldliness. And there were some really good things about these churches, like the baptism in the Holy Spirit, which is a message I still carry Uh, The the Bible, the importance of the Bible, and fellowship as an old word that we don't use enough. Fellowship, being in and out of one another's homes, eating together, spending time together. But reaching out to the lost didn't seem to be such a priority. It was as if we weren't to go too close to the world in case we liked it too much and were tempted by it. Now, your experience may have been very different to that. We've all had different experiences of church, both good and bad. But this is the question, what was Jesus like? And what is the Father's heart, especially for those that are lost? So over the next few weeks, I want to look at some of these questions. And we're going to work through Luke chapter 15, where Jesus addresses, first of all, religious people. Religious people, that's like you and me. We're religious people. We're churched. We're separate from the world, okay? We're religious people. And he challenges our understanding of what it means to be God's friends. And I want us to catch something of the Father's heart in this. Something of his compassion 
his grace and acceptance of those who may be different to us, perhaps even those that offend us. And this has got to be a supernatural work. I've been thinking about this. I can't teach you into this. It's something that we've got to catch from the Father's heart. So I'm going to just pray and ask the Father to share his heart with us. Is that okay? Father, please will you share your heart with us. I'll do my best to teach and reveal what you've shown, shown me, Lord. And, but Father, we need a supernatural work in our hearts. Will you change us forever because of this series? We just want to give it to you, Lord. Come and have your way amongst us. Come and break our hearts for what breaks yours, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus drew sinners to him. They loved being around him. Religious people complained about that. Why? Why did sinners feel so drawn to Jesus? Why were they not repelled by his holiness? What was it about him that attracted the broken? And how should this revelation shape our response? Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, says this, that the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious people, muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And you know, I think, Religious people have always struggled to work out their relationship with the world. Which is crazy, really, when we see here Jesus surrounded by sinful friends, even seeming to delight in spending time with them, and they with him too. And do do you think that's the same for us? Do you think sinful people, I'm going to keep using that phrase... Do you think sinful people are comfortable around us or do we make them feel awkward? I'm going to take you briefly through these three parables and then I'm going to leave you with a challenge and answer none of the questions that the challenge raises. And it's going to be about how we view people who may be living very differently to us. So here's the first parable. It's the parable of the lost sheep, verses 3 to 6-ish, 7. Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. The parable of the lost sheep. The interesting thing for me as I've been looking at these parables with fresh eyes is 
how often our focus is on the lost sheep. But the radical part of this story is actually the shepherd. And of course we know that Jesus is the good shepherd. We know that he's the shepherd from Psalm 23 and he leads us beside still waters. But that's not the point actually. Not here. What Jesus wants the Pharisees to understand and what he wants us to know is that God aligns himself with the shepherd. That's members of an unclean profession. People who lived outside of society who probably didn't smell very nice either. Jesus challenges the Pharisees because what he says in this story is that God aligns with the shepherd, not them. Who does God align with today? Is it with us? Is it with the priests of pomp and circumstances? Or is it with those of the flashy auditoriums and the big budgets? Or is it with those that have the same attitude as the shepherd to the lost? Here we see a shepherd who goes looking for the lost. He leaves the safe ones, probably with some other shepherd friends, and then he goes after those that are right on the edge out there somewhere. Lost. This didn't fit with the thinking of many Jewish teachers who stress, for instance, that God's forgiveness is available but only to the repentant. They would never think that God went looking for sinners. No, sinners, they had to come to him begging for mercy. And you know, I think we still struggle with this invitational model. This model where for salvation, people have to come to Jesus. Where we wait for them to come to church. But Jesus' model is completely the opposite to that. Honestly, I have not seen this before. His model is the opposite of that. He goes to the lost and he rescues them. He goes to them. And here's one of the points of the story is that the shepherd's friends rejoice when he finds which was lost And the question is, do God's friends rejoice when he recovers what was lost to him? And so the religious people who resent Jesus' fellowship with sinners, here's the implication, they may not be God's friends at all. That's the implication, and that's the staggering fact. Jesus then takes a swipe at those who consider themselves to be religious, in verse 7, he says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. (laughs) Where's God looking? Where's the shepherd? The river goes out 
That's what we're talking about at the moment. And our strategy, some of our strategy is that we need to tell the stories of Jesus to people. So who needs to hear this story? God is looking for messed up people to bring back to his friends for a party. And we're his friends, the church. And we're meant to have parties when people come to Jesus and discover who he is. So do you recognize the shepherd and are you one of his friends? Here's the second story. And it's the parable of the lost coin, verse 8. He says, suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, Jesus says, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. Now, the main character in this story, again, don't get fooled, it's not about the coin, (laughs) it's about the woman. And this challenges right away the Pharisees' view of women and God too. Jesus identifies God, the Father, as the woman in the story. Well, that causes all kinds of problems, apart from God's gender, but... Also, that the Pharisees had such a dim view of the moral character of women. So how could they be an example of anything? And a poor one? Definitely not. Maybe there's some posh women around who've got some good things to say, but not this poor woman that God is identified with. And this ten silver coins, well, that was probably the woman's dowry, and it was equivalent to about ten days of a worker's wage, so she was really poor. And this handheld oil lamp, limited light, this rough stone floor, all very common in homes of poor people. Nothing like the home of the Pharisees. And so the father here is depicted as a poor woman sweeping the floor to find a lost coin of very little value out of the dark crevices of a very dirty floor. And then she calls her other poor friends and they rejoice with her. And Jesus says in the same way, I tell you that there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. The implication, again, that the friends of God are those who rejoice at the return of dirty and worthless people of very little value. And even the angels get involved with those kind of people come back. To Pharisees, religious people, Jesus is saying, why are you not joining in with the celebration if you're God's friends? When dirty, poor people turn up out of the crevices of society, why don't you welcome them? So who else needs to hear this story about where you can find God? He goes sweeping for people in the darkest places to bring them back to celebrate with his friends. And we're God's friends when we join in with this work.
This is challenging stuff. And now we've got to go on to the parable of the lost son. And I'm only going to do the first couple of verses because we're going to spend weeks on this particular story. But just verse 11 and 12 It says that Jesus continued, just in case they didn't get the message already, that there was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And in this story, God is depicted as a father who endures the offensive acts of a son who asks for his inheritance while his father is still alive, effectively saying, Dad, I can't wait for you to die. Can you give it to me now? Or, I wish you were dead. No doubt, Jesus' hearers would have been appalled at such behavior. I'm not sure it would go down too well today either, even in the West. But this is the question, whether we are willing to embrace a God who seeks out and restores those who have offended him. Because they will also be the kind of people that have offended us. Because you see, this story is one that challenges societal norms, even church ones. The people that have crossed the line for some of us. People that are hard to accept as part of our community. Murderers. Sex offenders. Drug addicts. Wife beaters. I'm trying to think of any other offensive kind of person. People that we would find hard to sit down with. You see, rather scandalously, the father waits to embrace these kinds of people. And how many of you know that unless we are shocked by grace, we've not even begun to understand it? Who else needs to hear this story? That God is a father who loves and forgives those that offend us too. Anyone can come. No one is beyond help. Anyone can return to the father and experience his love and acceptance, his embrace. Anyone, literally anyone. I had so much fun getting to know some of my Russian friends and talking to Dave Devon, she said he had a real challenge in appointing leaders at the beginning because he said many of the leaders were actually mafia, mafia types, murderers, extortionists, gangster types. And he said the church would never accept some of these people as leaders in the West. But he said those are the people that God has gathered in these churches. Paul was a murderer. Just thought I'd drop that in. These three parables show us the Father's heart for the lost. Jesus is the friend of sinners 
and he's there for a friend of mine because I'm also a sinner. We mustn't forget that. We mustn't forget what we're capable of. I don't know where I would be if I didn't know Jesus because I know what I'm capable of. So, that's the teaching. Here's the application. And I'm warning you, this is challenging. And I want you to think about this and pray about it this week. Here's the scenario. Imagine a couple of individuals who start attending our church and they express the desire to join a life group. They're probably already in Lorraine and Steve's or Steve and Vicky. They, they desire to join a life group or serve on one of the welcoming teams. That's because Alison's already signed them up, probably. No problem, right? But what if this couple happened to be a same-sex couple? Would they still be welcome? You know, what barriers or challenges might you or we collectively face? This is a very real possibility. And the scenario, though specific, is just one of many examples I could have used. It could have been any situation that we might find challenging for religious, spiritual, whatever reasons. Perhaps a yoga instructor. (laughs) So we actually had a couple come to us miraculously many years ago. It was an incredible story of how God led them to us. They were completely unchurched, had no Christian background at all, but they were drawn by the singing. And they came and they met, they came into our meetings week after week and they cried and they were touched. And then the lady found out that she was seriously ill. And so a couple of people offered to pray with her And her profession was that of a yoga instructor. That's what she did for a living. That's what she earned money doing. And somebody who prayed for her said to her, unless you give up yoga, God's not going to heal you. You need to repent of that. Oh, my goodness. And this poor lady just did not understand. She could not compute. And she thought, I've got no choice. I can't come back again. And they didn't. They were so upset, so hurt. Church, please. I mean, you may have been right in your discernment. I don't know who it was, actually. So I'm sorry if you're here. (laughs) I'm happy to talk to you later. I don't know who it was who said that. And you may have been right in one sense, but you don't start like that. You don't start like that. And Jesus is quite capable of healing somebody, whatever your condition, whatever stuff you're into. In fact, I've seen more miracles with spiritually in-tune people that aren't Christians than people that are so-called Christians. Don't do that. Don't isolate people like that. Oh, I've been waiting to say that for a long time. It might be yoga. It might be some different kind of cultural background or challenges that you or we might uh, collectively face. Anybody living a lifestyle that contrasts with traditional norms. Uh, And let me be clear, I'm not suggesting that 
we embrace or even agree with alternative lifestyles as if they're inherently good, what I'm emphasizing is the call to love unconditionally. You know, love should lead us to reach out in friendship first, not initiate change as a condition. You know, now this thinking I'm going to share with you isn't original to me. I've heard it before, and then I was reminded of it again recently. And, and it's this, that the conventional, mod, the conventional model of belonging to any kind of community, but particularly the church, is first behave... And then you can belong. Uh, sorry, then you can believe and then you can belong. You've got to go through those three steps. Behave, then you can believe and then you can belong. But that doesn't seem to fit into the approach that Jesus took. Because you see, Jesus operated under a different paradigm. It was belong, believe, behave. <laughs> See, Jesus entered into relationships with people regardless of where they were, spiritually, morally, socially, and in various other aspects. His friends, including tax collectors, which we don't realize how offensive that is, okay? We can't, we can't get our minds around that because we're not in that situation. This is a traitor, a total traitor of my community. He was friends with them, prostitutes, well, probably I don't need to go into that one. And others considered societal outcasts. They were also in the early church, which is why some of the New Testament was written to correct some things, because they were all in there. And once they sensed that they could belong, because there was relationship, there was friendship, there was acceptance, then Jesus invited them to follow him. That's belief. Come with me on this journey. And after belief took root, he encouraged them to behave differently. He urged them to change their thinking and live in alignment with God's ways. It never came the other way around. They'd had an encounter. They met Jesus. They saw who he was. And as a result, they wanted to change the way that they lived. They sold everything for the pearl of great price because of what they'd seen. It's not because of what somebody had told them not to do or to do always that way around it's like it in any other human relationship you know when I began dating Alison <laughs> our journey started with friendship let me just say that belonging and it's carried on actually she is my best friend then as our connection deepened, we chose to commit to one another. We went steady. <laughs> That's belief. There's something in this. I'm committed to this. It was only as our love grew that we wanted to better ourselves for each other and modify our behavior for one another. That's when the behavior started to kick in. There's, do you know that marriage is full of ongoing compromise? Because of love, because of the relationship. It's that way around. I mean, of course, you put on your best behavior. And I put on a... Anyway, I won't go down there. 
Well, she, she said to me on one occasion, I really like aftershaves. I thought, oh, all right then. I didn't wear aftershave, but when I bought one, one of those samples, I thought, oh, that's a whole, that's a whole thing. So you put the whole lot on. I didn't know. <laughs> you only meant to, like this. So the smell emanated as she opened the door. She almost had to leave out the other side. But the behaving, the continual negotiation of love is what marriage is made of. That's how you behave. Now, I'm going to come back to this. I, I want to do a mic drop on this in a way and just walk away and leave you to think about it because I'm going to come back to this in a couple of weeks when we talk about how the father receives back the prodigal son. So I, want, I really want you to think about this. Behave, believe, belong doesn't work. People need to belong first. And that can be really challenging for us. But that's Jesus' way of doing things. So I want you to think about this. And I want you to think about your own circle of friends. Are we capable of the accusation that Jesus had, that we're called the friend of sinners? Wouldn't it be great for Jubilee Church to be criticized by other churches because we were so accepting of people? Because, you know, Jesus' challenge for the religious people is the same for us today. If we're not the friends of sinners, then we can hardly call ourselves friends of God either. I feel so tempted to moderate, to just reassure you and all this kind of stuff. But I'm not. I'm going to leave it there. We really need to think about this. This is a real thing. So let me just conclude. Basically, what I wanted to do today was to capture something vital. God's heart for the broken the compassion that he extends and his grace towards those that are very different from us. Sinners were drawn to Jesus while the religious leaders grumbled. And the key question for us today is to think about why it was that sinners were drawn to Jesus and not repelled. What was it about him? And could it be the same for us? Religious people throughout history have grappled with their relationship with the world. But the intriguing thing for me is that, and I've seen this with just fresh eyes, I hope you've seen it too, that Jesus was surrounded by sinful friends. He delighted in spending time with them. So do those kind of people feel comfortable around us? Do they feel like they have to watch their P's and Q's when they're around us. So I want us to think, and I am thinking, seriously, I haven't got this right. And the frightening thing, you know it says that teachers will be judged more harshly. I, I say these things with the fear of God on me. Because we need to think about some of the friends that we've got and ask if they're sinful enough. (laughs) 
And I know this is a challenge for us. And I don't have many unbelieving friends, and the ones that I have always seem to avoid me for some reason. But something needs to change in our hearts because this is the Father's heart for the lost. So I just want to pray again. You remember I started praying, Lord, reveal your compassion. And I want to just ask the Father to share his heart with us. So if you're open, why don't you just put your hands out, stand, kneel, lie, whatever, however this has impacted you. Why should I be the only one that's been impacted by this? That's why I wanted to share it with you. Father, come and share your heart with us. Lord, I I know that there's nothing that I can manufacture in my own heart. or I can't teach us into this. I can't command us into it. Lord, we need to change from the inside out because your heart, the river goes out and we're not going to be able to keep up with it. Lord, please will you share your heart with us even through this week as we meet different ones and maybe we've been like the religious people in the story of the Good Samaritan. We've crossed to the other side of the road. I know I have, Lord. Forgive us, Lord. And Father, will you break the fear of contamination in us? We break that now because we are the people of God and there's nothing that can stop that. Father, have mercy. Father, change our hearts. Father, will you break our fear of dark places as well? You know, like the the good shepherd, he went out onto the edges, swept the crevices. Father, we are light, that's what you said, and so we have to go into dark places. Will you break the fear of that, Father, in our hearts? Father, will you break the fear of reputational loss? Father God. Father, I want to ask you for an atmosphere change around us that's supernatural, that will even take us by surprise. Because, Lord, it needs to be a work of your spirit. And I want to pray that somehow we'll become magnetic to sinful people. Each one of us in our personal walks, that the person in the office nobody wants to speak to, or the person in the playground that... The, the mother or father that nobody goes near, Father, are the ones with the rumours about them. I pray that you do something, Lord, so that they're drawn to us. 
because there's something about Jesus that was so attractive and Father we should be the same like moths are drawn to the light Father I pray that the moths of our society (laughs) would be drawn to the light in us to the peace that we know to the healing that we've experienced to the hope that we have because of you Jesus will you do something new in our hearts we pray in Jesus name Lord just give us grace for people that are wildly different to us give me that grace Lord Because, Lord, you said you build your church. And we want to be part of a a church that's very different to what we see now. For your glory. Amen. Thank you so much, Rob, for bringing that. Jubilee, just as when Rob was speaking, I felt that this is a very significant message for us. It's it's like it's a watershed moment, actually, for us as a church. And I just want to encourage you to maybe go back and listen to that talk again, because there's quite a lot to unpack, I think. So go back and re-listen to it. Thank you, Rob.